Jeremiah chapter 2. I don't know why this thought came to mind, but when I said Jeremiah, I thought, why did they ever sing a song that said Jeremiah was a bullfrog? Never figured that one out. I always wanted to say, well, no, he's a prophet, you know, but maybe I maybe it was another Jeremiah they were talking about. Jeremiah chapter 2. Let's... Uh, Let's read verses 1 through 3 and then we'll pray. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord. The first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, help us to understand this particular passage tonight that we're going to be studying. Bring to our remembrance, Lord God, the things that we have learned so far concerning the prophet and his call. And then, Lord, Allow us to receive even more of your wisdom and understanding concerning this prophecy and the reason for it. And then, Lord, help us to realize the significance of this prophecy in light of the days and times in which we live and how we need to realize as well the fact that the spiritual aspect of your word is going to be so readily uh, necessary in the the days and times in which we live in these last last days. So Father, we, we, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word, not just for the sense of academic growth, but most importantly for our practical Christian living and life. We ask, Father, for the outpouring of your spirit now, For us to be able to be awake and aware and and conscious of all that is said and done in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of you who may know a bit about mountain climbing, you would probably agree with me that if hiking a, a very steep mountainside, should you be haphazard in your approach to scaling that precipitous ridge, you will lose your footing and slide back down that slope, sending debris flying and risking personal injury to yourself and any climbers behind you. Well, that serves as a picture of a Christian who is no longer making progress in their relationship with the Lord, usually by their own decision, and usually because of willful sin on their part. This is what we normally label as backsliding. And if anyone was schooled by the Lord in the backsliding of God's people, it was Jeremiah the prophet, given that of the 16 times that the word backsliding or its plural backslidings occurs in the, in the New King James Version of the Bible, 14 of those are found in the book of Jeremiah. It was Jeremiah's mission and his duty to point out the backslidings of Judah to them, as he does in verse 19 of this chapter. We won't get there tonight, but we are going to work toward this particular verse. It says, your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. What a powerful statement is made here by God to his people. Your own wickedness will correct you. 
and your backslidings will rebuke you. Now, think for a moment as you listen to that statement, what it's saying. Think in terms of where God is going with His people. Because this, is, this usually isn't the, the, the favorite topic of believers since we generally like to dwell on things that are more hopeful and encouraging. But, but I do want to tell you that there is great hope in discussing the issue of backsliding. You see, we hear the, that statement, and I want to read it again. Your, your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. The only thing we hear is wickedness and backsliding. We sometimes miss the word correction and hope. So I want to tell you that there is great hope in discussing the issue of backsliding. And that actually comes from the origin of the word for backsliding itself. It is the Hebrew root word translated backsliding. It's shuba, S-H-U-B-A. It's transliterated, of course. Shuba, which can mean turn or it can mean return. So turn away from or return to. That whole sense is in that word. So the word that is used here and in most of the times that we see the word meshuba or shuba, it is in the, the compound word meshuba as used here. And it refers to backsliding as turning from God with the possibility of returning to God. Turning from God with the possibility of returning to God. You know, when we ever talk about a, a brother or sister in the Lord that has backslidden into the world, the one thing that we want to tell them is, you need to come back to the Lord. You're backslidden, but we have hope and we, we have confidence that if you'll open your eyes and your heart to the Lord, He's going to forgive you. You confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Uh, he'll, you know, you need to come back. So you, you, you understand that our thinking and our understanding is dealing with the believer or the person that is supposedly a believer in Jesus Christ. You can't slide away from something you haven't been in. You can't backslide away from that which you haven't been in, involved with or a part of. So, as the Lord says to Judah in verse 19, your backslidings will rebuke you. But then he says in chapter 3, verse 1, Yet return to me, says the Lord. So all along we realize that that's what God's intention is, that we would return to him. Now, understand this. This is not a game. It's not a game to say, you know, well, God's always going to expect me to return, so I'm going to go this way because I'll always come back. Well, you know, that's presumptuous. It's presumptuous on our part. To try to play that kind of game with God. What we need to constantly do as believers in Jesus Christ is to have that fear of God that says, I don't want to do anything that dishonors the Lord. I don't want to do anything that, that uh, uh, you know, that, that lessens, not, not, it's not ever going to lessen Him. I mean, God is perfect. But that lessens my walk or my witness to others about the Lord. So it's, it's really important then that we don't say, well, you know, I can do this because I can eventually return. Because what that says is your heart may not be right at all. So it's an everyday thing for us to examine our hearts, to see that we're in the faith, examine ourselves as we spoke of on Sunday morning about communion and having that examination of where our hearts are with God so that we don't backslide. So that we don't slide away from the Lord. So as for those who turn from God, the Lord will plead with them to return to Him. This is now the understanding of the heart of God and the how of God. The heart of God and the how of God. You see, the heart of God is, return to me, saith the Lord. The how of God is what we want to deal with tonight. How does God deal with those who turn from Him that they might return to Him? Well, by pointing out to them their need to remember the love of their betrothal. 
since he so clearly remembers it himself. Let's go back to verses 1 through 3. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah saying this, came to me saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I will, I remember you. Now, what God is saying in this is, I remember you, you need to remember too. I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. And the thought about uh, the thought that God is getting out to his people is this. Do you remember? Do you remember how it was when you first loved me? God is saying. Do you remember how it was when you first loved me? Remember? I heard a lot of you say that. Oh, remember? Do you remember? God is saying, do you remember how it was when you first loved me? Even when the land was yet wilderness, before it was thriving, before it was prosperous, before it was full of milk and honey. Do you remember? You know, there is an interesting similarity in what God is saying here to to the children of Judah between what you know what he's saying to Judah and what Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 very similar thing Revelation 2 verses 2 through 5 Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus and he says I know your works I know your works your labor your patience and that you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars, and you have uh, persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and, and have not become weary. Up to that point, it sounds pretty good. I know your works. A lot of people today, you know, they like to kind of stake claim on their works and say, you know, well, you know, this is what I do for the Lord, blah, 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 this and that. God says, I know your works. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Let me emphasize the word left here because some people have it in their minds that it says that you've lost your first love. It doesn't say you've lost it, it just says you left, left it. You have left your first love. And then he says, remember. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Do the first works. Do you remember how it was when you, when you loved me? Do the first works. Or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Unless you turn from your backsliding. It makes me wonder... Do we remember a time when we love the Lord more than we do now? Was there ever a time when our love for Him was sincere? It was real, it was clean, it was fresh, it was indispensable, it was vital? Or have, or, or have things gotten stale between us and God? Have things gotten that way in your personal relationship to Jesus? Instead of being devoted, instead of being dedicated and, and desirous of the things of God, are we seeing things in the church today as drudgery, as burdensome, as toilsome, rather than a labor of love and of joy? The Lord remembered, he says, the kindness of your youth, he said. The kindness of your youth. An interesting phrase because kindness is favor here. Kindness is favor. And the Lord remembered their favor towards Him. In other words, He remembered how thankful, how thankful they were when He delivered them and He saved them. You know, we can't thank God enough. We can't thank Him enough for His mercy. We can't thank Him enough for His, for, for his forgiveness. We can't thank Him enough for His grace. 
Has anybody here today thanked him enough? I can't thank him enough. I wish I had more hands to put my hands up and say, Lord, I just can't thank you enough for what you've done for me. For what you've done for us. For what you're doing right now. For your body that, your body that you love. Thankfulness is a mark of first love. I can remember 30-some years ago. I can't remember now how many. 37. 37. 37 years. Coming to know Jesus Christ. And coming to realize what it meant to love Him and to serve Him. Along the way, we have those bumps in the road, the ups and the downs, the roller coaster rides, you know. But from time to time, the Lord will always seem to remind us of our first love, how precious that was. It's hard to, to pass that up. And it's, it's that first love that reminds us of how thankful we are supposed to be to God. Uh, Psalm 100 uh, says this. And, and by the way, the, the title, the subtitle says, A Psalm of Thanksgiving. It says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving. You know, we ought to read this all the time. Because I know some people like to enter into His gates with complaints. Enter His gates with murmurings. Enter His gates with problems and you know, all kinds of... Without coming in to give Him thanks. Just for the very breath that we breathe. Uh, you, you did uh, breathe this morning, right? When you woke up? You know, all, with all due respect to those who may suffer from a little bit of sleep apnea or whatever. Then at times, you know, you go... Eventually, <laughs> breathe, right? You, you know, uh, you get up in the morning... Oh, it's another morning. That's a good time to thank the Lord. It's a good time. Start today with thanks. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures for all generations. The Lord is good. Mercy everlasting. Truth endures. We have so much to be thankful for. Psalm 107, verses 20 through 22. In referencing that deliverance of the children of Israel and how God loved them and protected them and, 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 and healed them and, and delivered them. It says in verse 20, He sent His word and He healed them, delivered them from their destructions, all that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare His works with rejoicing. How many times does the Apostle Paul Encourage us to give thanks. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Abounding with it in thanksgiving. Or in it with thanksgiving. In other words, we're never to stop thanking God. We start with thanks because of what He's done for us. That's the mark of first love. That's the first thing we forget to do. That's the first thing we start to put aside. Because the trials that are sent our way, and they're sent for a reason. We don't always know why, but they are there and they're going to come. 
And, and we need to be ready for them. But when the trials come, the testing of our faith is going to produce a lot of things, patience and, and hope and, and, and whatnot. But, but the important thing is that it should never deproduce our thanks to God. As a matter of fact, we ought to thank you for the trials because in them we will be built up more and more in our faith in Christ. So what was God doing then in, in, in this passage that we're reading and studying today? God, God was lamenting over His own people. Seemingly broken hearted over what had taken place. What was happening to the people? This was still a little bit of the time that Josiah had, had already begun reforms. And, uh, and some believe that this was also the time uh, that the priests had found the scrolls of God's Word. But God is speaking to them as if they have already forsaken Him. Well, God, who would know better than God who knows each and every one of our hearts where we stand as to how we come to the Lord and how we come to church, how we come and what is our attitude toward the Lord when we come. He already knows when we walk, before we walk into the door. And these people were going to forsake him. And he's speaking as if he already realizes they're just going through the motions of sacrifice. They're going through the motions of, 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 uh, of their ceremonies and their rites in the law. But where are their hearts? The revealing is that their hearts were idolatrous. So God is lamenting over this. He's broken hearted that the love they had for Him at one time had now grown cold towards Him. And what an irony that is. Though the Lord had taken them safely through their wilderness journey and given them a wonderful inheritance in Canaan, they abandoned Him. For what? For gods made by human hands that would bring them actually no eternal profit whatsoever. They abandoned God for gods made by hands. And is that loyal love? Is that loyal love? Go back to the book of Judges for a moment. Judges chapter 2. This was one of the most critical and probably one of the saddest chapters in all of the Bible. We're told in Judges 2 verse 10 and following, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them. Now, first of all, let's understand what generation we're talking about. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, speaking of that generation that had come into the promised land, there was one generation left in the promised land, died in the promised land after the 40 years. It was a new generation that comes into the promised land. Of the old generation, who comes? Joshua and Caleb. But for the most part, it's a new generation in the promised land. Joshua now the leader. When this generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation. Here's the sad part. The next generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done in Israel or for Israel. And then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed to them. They bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And because of that love relationship they once had with the Lord, no one, that's what verse 3 tells us. No one could stand against Israel as long as they were in this particular love relationship with the Lord. No one could stand against Israel and survive. God was with them. But what was happening now? 
we're giving we're, we're given a picture here of a marriage. We're given a picture of a marriage, and my question to you is, was the marriage beyond repair? Was the marriage beyond repair? Why were God's people angry, bitter, resentful, and vengeful? Have you ever wondered why it is that some people, you know, that may have been around the church or in the church for a while, uh, something happens in their life, and all of a sudden the first thing they want to do is they want to blame God. They blame God, then they become angry at God, then they become bitter and resentful at God, and, and they go off away from the Lord, away from the things of God. What are they doing? In essence, they're doing exactly what these people did. They're worshiping idols. The first idol is the one they look at in the mirror every day. God's not big enough for them any longer to take care of whatever they were selfishly wanting to have for them. Therefore, now they're not going to look at God at all. They're going to look at themselves. What is the how of God here, you see? We know what the heart of God is. What's the how? Look at verse verse 4 and verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me? Do you, I want you to notice how he asks the question. What injustice have your fathers found in me? that they have gone far from me, have followed idols and have become idolaters. That's exactly what I was just describing. What injustice have your fathers found in me? Now this is, these are the words of a just God. A God who is always just, a God who is always true, a God who is always righteous, a God who is always holy. What injustice have they found? Think about this underlying question. Are they now greater than God? To judge Him as an unjust God. So that now they no longer worship Him and trust Him. Now they're worshiping and trusting idols made by hands. In essence, what God is asking them is this. What have I done to cause you to turn from me and go after other gods and empty things? When did I fail you? And this is when we need to be very open and honest in our hearts. Does God fail us? Is there ever a time that God has failed you? That God is failing you even now? Is He? But, but be honest, you see. Do, have, have bad things happened to good people? May I ask you a question? Who's good? Do we get upset at God because good things happen to bad people? Folks, the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls on, on the righteous and on the wicked. There's a grace that is a natural grace that we cannot always understand, but God knows. And God's big enough to understand, and God's big enough to, to have the wisdom to separate all of these things in the proper way. To rightly divide everything. You see, God is the, the right divider for every issue and everything. And never is there any contradiction in what God does. God is always just. God is always good. God is always holy. What's our problem? We're none of those things. Because we're flesh. We're human. We've been stained with sin. But God is asking a question. What have I done? Man, if you put it on the love arena, <laughs> the person that you're supposed to love and, sh- and, and share life with in, 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 in the proper and godly way, what have I done? Is usually the, the question. Not what are you doing, but what have I done? Because we care about not hurting anyone. 
That certainly broadens the scope of the picture of the heart of God. To ask the question in such a way as to say, why are you angry and bitter with me? What have I done? And you think about the squabbles in a marriage or the squabbles in a, in a situation where things aren't going all that good. You know, it's, it's, we be, you know, if we don't stay focused on the Lord, we become like the world. All of a sudden we become very selfish. We have, to, we have to take a position. What position? There's only one position we take if we've sinned, uh, sinned against somebody we love, and that is on our knees before God and before them and pleading for forgiveness. But you see, obviously here, it isn't the Lord who's failed them. The Lord didn't fail them. They turned from Him. That's what's happened. Look at verses 6 and 7. Neither did they say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt? God's response is, I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. That's a tremendous charge that God gives here. First of all, they say, wow, where's the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, led us through the wilderness, to a land of deserts and pits. It's the pits, man. Land of drought and the shadow of death. A land that no one crossed, no one dwelt. We know what that's called, don't we? Wilderness. They measured it. Go straight on in this wilderness. It's an 11-day journey. How do you spend 40 years in a land where it should have only taken you 11 days to cross? But let me ask you this question. Do we need a, a, a wilderness experience? May, may, may I let you in on a little secret? We're all in one right now. This land, this earth, this time that we're spending, this is our wilderness experience. Although we've already come to Christ and although we are sitting in heavenly places with Christ Jesus as Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians because we've come by faith to Christ has anybody seen pie in the sky yet or are you living on a bed of roses is not this earth still in 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 under the under the curse i mean we're growing older we're getting, you know, in that older sense, we're also finding a few more little earths here and there. You know, the second law of thermodynamics is, is going on and on in a, you know, a very perfect way, you know, which means that we're not so perfect. Did you understand where we're going with that? Things in this earth, because of the time continuum in which we're in, are falling away disintegrating so to speak little by little the time is coming for this to be over to some extent this is our wilderness experience but those who God delivered and rescued and brought to this land they, 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 they no longer sought the Lord and neither did they remember all that God had done for them, how, how He made them a people that were not a people, you know. Willful sin and backsliding from God caused us to forget the things of God and all that God has done for us. Deuteronomy 7, I mean, this is, this is classic understanding of where they were before God chose them. I mean, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 and following says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be, to be a people for Himself. Which means that at one time they weren't a people. They were, you know, 
But God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, simply God loves you, and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, because God is a covenant-keeping God, He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know, know, know that the Lord your God, He is God. Know it. You see, this is something that we have to continually do on a daily basis. The thought of is this. How many of you remember what you learned 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, however long it's been, since you were in, the, in, in your algebra class? Now, some of you may remember it because you either teach math or because you've gone on to use math in, in whatever uh, field you're in. But most of us are like, I don't know. There are a lot of things I don't remember about that or science or anything, you know. There were some classes I just wanted to get out of. You understand? And we don't know those things anymore. What we better know is the God who made us, the God who saved us, and the God who's keeping us until the day of Jesus Christ. We need to know Him. And His people were supposed to know Him because God is saying to know that the Lord, your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him. Notice, love Him and keep His commandments. You can't separate that. You can't separate your, his, your love for Him and, and, and His commandments. And then He says, and he, and he repays those who hate Him to their face to destroy them. You know, there are a lot of people today who hate God. And even some who may have grown up in the church. They just come in and say, I don't need God. I had enough of that when I was a kid. And they hate God. Some may not say it, but they, but they say it by their actions. They don't say it with their words, but they say it with their actions and with their lives. He repays those who hate Him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Let's get back to the wilderness thing. The Lord brought them through the wilderness which is a reminder for us that this world remains a spiritual wilderness to the child of God. What the children of Judah did was to let the material blessings... If you get anything tonight, get this thought. What the children of Judah did was to let the material blessings that God showered upon them in the world take priority over the spiritual blessings. I want to repeat that. What the children of Judah did was to let the material blessings that God showered upon them in the world take priority over their spiritual blessings that He had showed them where? In the wilderness. What did God tell them when He takes them out into the wilderness? I am going to be a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I am going to lead you. You follow me. You set your camp when we stop at night around me. You come and honor me, worship, offer to me. Forty years in the wilderness. And whatever kind of shoes that they wore on their feet never wore out. Isn't that a blessing? Every time they were... In need of water, God gave them water. Whenever they needed food, God gave them food. If it wasn't manna from heaven, it was after their complaining for meat, because they wanted meat, that He sent a whole bunch of birds so that they could hit them, you know. And they had so many that some of them were choking on the birds. But God gave them what they needed. They, he never stopped blessing them. And at one point... The, one of the biggest blessings they had was Moses because at one point God was that's it I'm getting rid of him and Moses said Lord take me first take me instead 
Moses teaches us what it means to be an intercessor, what it means to stand in the gap for his people. That was a tremendous blessing because they all would have been toast. So you see how God blessed them throughout the wilderness experience. Is God not blessing us in this spiritual wilderness experience that we're going through until we see the day of Christ? Has he not blessed us? They desired the lifestyle. See, once they got into this realm with all these other nations around them, they desired the lifestyle of the pagans around them. Having put the world first, they became idolaters. When you put the world first, you become an idolater. Let me share with you the words of John, and he writes in his first letter, 1 John And in chapter 2, this is what he says, verse 15. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, notice the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the three things that took Adam and Eve down, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's not put the world first. You know, there's a lot of people, and and I say this with all due respect to those of you who like to watch the Olympics, and and I do too. As a matter of fact, probably too much. Because, you know, last night I just was watching and watching. Wow! Then I got like three channels, and I can go from one event to another. Then I realized what time it was. I said, oh my goodness. Let me not get so caught up in this, you know. So I got here this morning, (laughs) you know. Oh, Menzo. Anyway. Um, well, thank the Lord I got awakened. <laughs> but, you know, but with all due respect to that, there are a lot of people that are putting the world first in these Olympic Games. As if to say, you know, if you notice something, there's not a whole lot of things said about God. <laughs> there are Christians, actually, that are athletes that are there. And hopefully, you know, God is using them to lead others to Christ. I really hope and pray for that. I know that there are certain societies that have sent Bibles for this very occasion, and I hope those Bibles are getting out in every language to every country. But for the most part, they don't want God in it. If you'll notice, especially those countries like the host country, you know, all they care about, you know what, it's, look at us, look at, look at how strong we are, look at how great we are, look at how big we are, look at how massive we are. And, and, and what, what, what do they say? We, there's no God. We did this ourselves. That's putting the world first. That's putting the flesh first. They've become idolaters of themselves. Idolaters of flesh. Weird, weird situation there, isn't it? I mean, when you think of it, two nations that are, you know, right on the first day of the, of the Olympics, you know, Russia and Georgia are fighting each other. And, and you know, it's crazy. This is like one world peace and all this kind of garbage as far as their slogans are concerned. Where is that, you see? Folks, this is, this is proving one thing. There is no peace without the Prince of Peace. And that's Jesus Christ. No peace without Christ. So they can do all of this, you know, uh, facade. But, but by the way, China wants to take over the world anyway, you know. They just do it with little 11-year-olds bouncing around that are supposed to be 16, smiling at everybody. But what's behind them, you know? You see? You understand the facade? Okay. I don't know why I got into that. Okay. 
All of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Let me read you verses 2 through 6. This is about, about idolatry. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. For the, by the way, for the sake of worshiping it or bowing down to it. You shall not make any carved image. You shall not, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God had brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey, and instead of praising and thanking Him, they turned to idols, defiling the land that God had given them with those abominations. And then, not only that, but then the leadership set the tone for the people to follow. And they still had leadership. And it was mostly spiritual leadership. It was mostly, I should say, religious leadership. Jeremiah 2, verse 8. The priest did not say, notice, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. Wow, they're handling the law, but they don't even know God. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. The priests, the religious leaders, and even the prophets showed no signs of knowing or understanding the salvation of the Lord, and yet they were dispensing to the people the Word of God. Isn't that crazy? Well, I hate to say this, but it's happening today. Liberal theologians from liberal seminaries are just going about, you know, standing there, reading the Scriptures, but not even believing it. Not even believing it. And the problem then was that it was their liberal views they were giving and not the truth. They weren't giving the truth of the word. They were giving their views. And it's sad to say it still takes place today. You know what Jesus says about this in, in Matthew 15 verse 14? Interesting statement Jesus says. He says, let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall in the ditch. We're facing this problem in our country today. When you have a people that no longer want to hear the truth. By the way, a lot of those in churches today. But when you, when you have a people that no longer want to hear the truth, there will be a proliferation or an explosion of false prophets that rise up to fill the vacuum and tickle people's ears with their lies. They say they speak for God. But they do not give the people the things that will profit them for eternity. That's what I want to look for when I go someplace where people say that they're worshiping the Lord. I want to see that they're giving the people the things that will profit them for eternity. This is why we teach the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. It's God's word. We believe it. We believe it wholeheartedly. We know it to be God's truth. Therefore, we're giving you what we believe to be of eternal benefit. But if we were to sit around and say, well, you know, this particular section of the Bible, well, it could be, a, it could be just some stories or... Uh, you know, man, I'd run from that place. And I'd take as many people with me as I could. Because I, I don't look at that as, as saying, you know, if I, if I can get people out of a place where they're teaching false doctrine, to take them is not dividing the church. I, don't, I wouldn't consider that the church because they're not teaching the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're having this problem. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 11 and 12, that then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Well, that's today, isn't it? And because lawlessness will abound, and here's the key to the statement he makes, and because lawlessness will abound, 
the love of many will grow cold. Now, that, that's, that, that statement can be seen a couple of ways. First of all, some people's love will grow cold because they're, they're going to be in a kind of a you know, situation where they, they feel that everything is coming against them. You know, paranoia. Paranoia has struck a lot of people. We don't need to be paranoid. We need to trust the Lord. But that happens. But the very fact that society today, if you think about this, Jesus was just talking about our day and time. The love of many has grown cold, has grown cold because lawlessness abounds in our country today. Lawlessness abounds. Paul, telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1-5, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Where is Paul at this point in time? He's getting ready to go to his death for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. There are a lot of fables out there today. Things that are not true because they're not substantiated by the Word of God. But you'll be watchful in all things, he says. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So getting back to Jeremiah, the Lord is trying to get their attention through the prophet Jeremiah in verses 9 through 11. He says, therefore I will, let you, I, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. And against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Notice what he says in verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. One of the saddest indictments that the Lord makes to the people of Judah is that, the, is that idolaters were more faithful to their false gods than the Jews were to the one true God. The nations of Cyprus and Kedar are mentioned as examples of nations that worship false gods and yet the people hadn't turned their backs on their idols. From west to east, as indicated by those two nations, Cyprus on the west, Kedar being further out east of, of the northern African region. Uh, so from west to east, as indicated here by these two countries, no pagan society, listen, no pagan society had ever changed its gods. Unless they came out of that to follow the God of Israel. But I hate to keep beating a dead horse here. But this is happening today. Those involved in cults and non-Christian religions could be more committed and faithful to their dead gods than some so-called Christians are to the living Lord Jesus. And to put a cap on this for tonight, in Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13, God says to them, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Which literally, he says... Uh, well, it's I can't say, <laughs> but it's pretty bad. In other words, what he say? Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Lastly, as I have stated before, the Lord points out two evils. The first is a sin of omission. They have forsaken the Lord. The second is a sin of commission. They have built for themselves their own cisterns that can hold no water. Israel had forsaken the true God for false gods, which was like abandoning a spring of fresh flowing water for a cracked, muddy cistern that couldn't hold water. Because you see, in the Middle East, water is a valuable possession. And no one would do anything foolish like that. It, it would be a foolish thing to try to build your own cistern. And by the way, a cistern is a large reservoir dug into the desert sand 
and then covered with plaster to capture water during times of drought. Rainwater and, and runoff from the slopes were what filled it. Those of you who go to Israel, you, we see a lot of cisterns, you know, that have been carved out, you know, at various uh, archaeological sites. Uh, at best, the water was stagnant, sometimes brackish, sometimes muddy, but otherwise, it was just polluted. Those who journeyed through the wilderness never dug a cistern. They always depended on the clean, clear, free-flowing streams or underground fountains for their water. Now let's consider this. Worldly pursuits, worldly possessions are cisterns that people dig into the earth, forgetting their journey to heaven. Better to remain a desert sojourner in the wilderness and to receive the spiritual flow of God's Holy Spirit being poured out into your life and through your life to others who are thirsty for a drink from heaven. Better that than trying to dig our own sister. Is it any wonder that Jesus said in John 7, 30, uh, 37 and 38, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, true living water is found only in a personal devoted relationship with God through Jesus Christ, as the woman at the well in Samaria came to discover. In John, in John 4, verses 9 through 14, it tells us the woman of Samaria said to Jesus, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink for me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, as if she's teaching Jesus a lesson. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You see, it's not about water. It's about Jesus. Even to the end of days and beyond, the Lord Jesus was not only the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even Jesus continues to be our all in all. Everything that we need for life and godliness, He continues to be that, will always be that. Our salvation, our deliverer, our redeemer, our strength unto the kingdom of God and of His Christ, leading us to Himself, the fountain of living waters. There will be a day and a time, as it says in Revelation chapter 7, and I'm going to close with this. There's a day and time coming in, in, in verses 13 through 17. But one of the elders answers saying to, to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. And please pay attention to verse 17. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Lamb will shepherd them. Funny statement, isn't it? It's usually a shepherd that shepherds lambs. It's the lamb that will shepherd us and lead them to living fountains of waters. When they get to the water, it'll be the lamb, the lion. It'll be the high priest. 
It'll be Jesus himself. And so who was forsaken? It isn't what was forsaken. Who was forsaken? For the things of this world. God is saying, I rescued you. I delivered you. I saved you. And you've left your first love. But in the word backslide is the hope of returning. And God says, return to me. I'll forgive you. Return to me. I'll heal you. Return to me. I'll strengthen you. Return to me. I'll satisfy you. Return to me. I'll be your all in all. Shall we pray?